have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, turn to Acts chapter 4. Some of you may have been unsure when I walked behind the, our curtain here uh, how I may come out. In all honesty, I've been here since about a quarter after eight and I forgot to get my mic. So <laughs> those kinds of things dawn on you and uh, so in doing so I just stepped back there and picked it up. So uh, I didn't know if you might expect, well, I wonder how he's going to come out. Is he going to come out dressed up or something? Not just a mic call. Acts chapter 4. Um, as you know, yesterday we entered into a new year. Uh, happy New Year. I think I had a chance to text most of you and wish you a happy new year. Uh, I hope as you uh, came into the new year, you were uh, been encouraged. Um, I want us to intercede today uh, on behalf of just us individually and as a church uh, as we enter into uh, this new year 2022. Uh, I want to lead us in prayer. I want to do so by reading from the Valley of Vision. Um, so I will read this prayer and it is a prayer for those of you who are unfamiliar with Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. Um, the authors are for the most part unknown. Um, but um, I would encourage you, if you don't have a copy, uh, order you a copy, uh, pick up a copy of it, uh, use it devotionally. Uh, Booney and I were talking about it this morning. It's been helpful to me over the course of the years. At times I appeal to it uh, more often than I do others, but recently I've been back looking at it closely, uh, just uh, being encouraged by the prayers and the way the way I should be thinking about God and the way that I should be praying as I pray. Um, but this is the New Year prayer that's listed uh, as New Year prayer uh, in the Valley of Vision. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and it'll be our God. O Lord, length of days do not profit me except the days are passed in Thy presence, in Thy service and in Thy glory. Uh, give us grace that precedes, uh, flows from, guides, sustains, sanctifies, and aids every hour that we may not be one moment apart from You, but that we may rely on Your Spirit to supply every thought, speak every word, direct every step, prosper every work, build up uh, every fortress of faith and give us a desire to show forth your praise to testify of your love advance your kingdom we launch out into waters that are unknown this year and with you father would you be our harbor christ jesus would you be our helm and holy spirit will you fill our sails will you guide us to heaven uh, with our Beings uh, girded up uh, with our lamp burning, uh, with our ears open to your call, with our heart full of love and our souls free. Give us your grace to sanctify us, your comfort to cheer us, your wisdom to teach us, your right hand to guide us, your counsel to instruct us, and your law to judge us. 
and your presence to stabilize us in the midst of all these things. May your fear uh, be our all and your triumphs our joys. In Jesus' name, amen. We are looking forward to next week and our celebration of our third year together. You'll hear some more about that through the course of the week. But I hope you're excited about the time that we'll have uh, to reflect uh, on the things that uh, God has done uh, for us uh, in these past three years. Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're concluding our 2021 Advent series today, January the 2nd, 2022. Uh, I wrote that down. That's not a coincidence, by the way. Uh, not a coincidence that it's January the 2nd, uh, but also not a coincidence that we're ending our Advent series uh, because when I was planning this, um, we wanted to focus on a few particulars through the course of Advent this year uh, and point to particular, uh, particular aspects of the Advent where glory is just so greatly revealed. Uh, and I knew that we would end today because there would be one last thing that we would want to give attention to at least this season of Advent. Uh, if it had been selecting a text or a theme for the first Sunday of the new year, I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't select a better text than what we'll look at today. Um, but before we read our text, I want us to pause for just a moment and, and consider what we have already given attention to uh, through the month of December as we uh, gave attention to Advent. I know we're past Christmas in our minds and we're moving on, but let's just stop for just a moment and look back. What we discovered is in the first week, the glory of Advent was a divine decision made in eternity. Uh, we simply saw that redemption was determined and decided upon by the triune God before the foundation of the world. I want you to hear this again. Uh, and, and you'll hear it echoed in our text today when we read from Acts 4 too, by the way. In other words, before there was ever an earth and before there was ever a human being, God determined to show His glory in time that had not even been established yet. In time, through His redeeming work in Christ. It's just a tremendous thought. And then we consider the glory of Advent a divine gift to man's greatest need. And when we peered into Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5, we heard that this gift was justification. That's what the gift is. Man's greatest need is to be justified. He needs his sins atoned for. Uh, he needs to be forgiven. And he needs to be made righteous. And in Christ, uh, the person of the advent, uh, those things were fully accomplished. Uh, then in week three, uh, we saw another aspect of the glory of Advent, a divine gift that transcends time. And we looked at Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3 and John 3.16, and we peered into this and we discovered that God is a transcendent God who loves with a transcending love, who gives a gift that transcends all of time, and the effects of that gift transcends time. And then last week, we looked at the glory of Advent 
a divine death-destroying gift. And we heard it uh, from Hebrews. And I want us to just hear those verses again and just let them just resonate and just resound uh, in, our, in our own minds and in our hearts. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is to the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And that brings us to our text today. Now the background of our text is, of course, Acts chapter 3. I want you to, you, you'll remember this as you hear it, and I would encourage you to go back and read it at some time. But Peter and John were walking through the temple. Now this is post-resurrection, post-ascension. Peter and John were walking through the temple during a time when people had gathered there to pray. And there was a 40-year-old man uh, who had not walked since birth who was in the temple. Uh, the Scriptures tell us that he was there every day. He was at a particular gate and he was there to receive alms. To put it in our terms and in our understanding, uh, he was basically there at this gate and I don't want to use the word begging because it was understood by virtue of him being at the temple that folks would go in would gift him. But you have seen folks who position themselves at particular places, even in our culture, to receive help. Sometimes we see them uh, at intersections, we see them at other places, but we'll see them positioned to receive help. And that's where this man was. And uh, people were walking by and he would ask for help. He would just ask for help. Will you, will you help me? Uh, not sure that he had a sign like people do today, but uh, nevertheless, he was there. And, uh, and the usual responses to these situations, and we've probably all acted out on these responses. And you just think about it. I don't want any, you don't, don't look at me. I'm not going to look at you. I'm just going to read these responses because uh, if I look at you, uh, your face will probably give way that you've probably engaged in some of this. Uh, I confess that I probably have as well. In fact, I know for sure that I have. Um, usual response is that I'm not going to make eye contact. Uh, I'm just going to keep moving. That's my response. I'm not going to make eye contact. I'm just going to keep moving past this person who has a need. Um, I'm going to look at them, but I'm going to drop a meager gift and I'm going to keep moving. Just kind of a token, so to speak. And then there is the, I'm going to look at them so that they don't think that I'm bothered by their presence, but I'm not going to give them anything because I'm just not quite sure of what's going on, but I don't want them to feel like I'm just passing them by. And then there is the, I'm going to look at them and I'm going to look at them with eyes and a heart of compassion and I'm going to help them. One of the things that I remember one of the first in fact i think the very first trip that i made to made to ghana was that we were instructed don't look at the people at the intersections who are there begging uh begging for for, for money don't don't look at them don't make eye contact with them it was a hard thing i didn't do too well at it uh and we were told not to give and i didn't do too well at that either uh, but nevertheless, this man is at the gate and these people are walking by and Peter and John walk by him and the scriptures tell us that this is what happens. Something unusual, by the way. 
Peter did turn back and he looked at the man and he said, look at us. Talking about look at, look at John and me. And then Peter said these words, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter reached down and took him by the right hand and he helped him up. And that man who had never walked, and he was 40 years old, stood up and began leaping and began praising the Lord. What resulted was a setting where the folks who were around saw this miracle and Peter preached the gospel. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 4. Listen beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, uh, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with uh, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we were being examined today concerning a good deed done of a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in His name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed 
was more than 40 years old. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Why this text and why this message today? We're looking ahead into 2022 and probably all of us in some way or another are expecting some things to change. Maybe we have even plotted out in our own lives some changes that we want to make. We often call those resolutions. But I want to tell you what will not change. As long as you and I give breath, we will wake up every day in a world where men and women are lost. You're going to wake up in a house on a street where men and women who live within probably a pretty close distance, for some of you, some of you not because you live apart, away from folks, but most of us could probably throw a baseball and hit several houses where people live and are lost. The paths of our lives are strong with people who are spiritually lame, just like this man. They have been since birth. We have already discovered that in the course of these past weeks. They are as un unable to get help on their own as the man that was healed was unable to provide for himself. That's the reason that he was there to receive alms. His only hope was in Jesus and the only hope for those who in our lives we come in contact with, family members even, their only hope is Jesus. And I would say today that not only is their only hope Jesus, but our only hope is Jesus. If you've not yet trusted Him, your only hope is in Him. I know you hear that over and over again. My prayer is, is that for those who haven't trusted Christ, that you would trust Jesus because He's your only hope. Our aim this morning is to consider this though because you hear us say it. We heard Peter say there, listen to it again. Just back up if you would there in, in, verse, in verse 9. He says, by what means this man has been healed? In other words, if you want to know what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you 
and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. What I want you to see, I want you to recognize that this man is a symbol, is an example of what he's getting ready to say in regards to every person spiritually. And then he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. They were building something. According to God's providence, they were building this temple. They were to be building the kingdom. And Jesus was this stone, the stone that was rejected, that God had intended and had planned and had purposed. And that was, in fact, the cornerstone of everything that they were seeking to build. And yet they had rejected this cornerstone, which meant that all that they were building would never stand. Because they had rejected and pushed away this cornerstone. This Jesus, the cornerstone. And here's what he says. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is that true? Is that true? You say, well, sure it's true. I want us to explore this. Is Jesus Christ man's only hope for salvation? Because if He is, and you're here today, and you are rejecting Him, then you are as they, rejecting the cornerstone, and nothing that you build, nothing that you do, nothing that you do will ever render a relationship with God and eternal life. Is He the only means, our only hope for salvation? Is Jesus a person's only hope for salvation? We need to be clear. Because most of us in here would say yes. Many people will say yes but will mean something entirely different. They'll say, yes, Jesus saves. He is the only means. And everyone will ultimately be saved by Jesus, whether they hear of Him or not. You know what we call that? We call it universalism. We call it universalism. That is, everyone is destined for salvation. God wouldn't do otherwise. He loves the world. He's compassionate. He's a loving, gracious, compassionate God. And He's bound by that. And since He is all of those things, then He loves everyone and He saves everyone. And He does so through Christ. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? There are others who say no. They'll say that Christ is the means by which those in the Christian religion will get to heaven, but people of other religions will also get to heaven. We hear that regularly. In fact, it's not an uncommon thing to hear those who profess Christ when in the public forum, if they are asked, is Jesus the only hope for men's salvation? They'll just simply say, well, I don't know. Which they're saying, I don't know. No, He's not. 
Because if I'm leaving open another option, then the answer is no. It's not a matter that they don't know. They're saying no. They're saying that He's the only hope for me because I, I am of the Christian religion. In other words, all religions are equal and I cannot deny that people of other religions can get to heaven. You've probably heard me mention this before, but I want to share it again. The light came on in my eyes and in my life at a particular time regarding this, and I had heard it, but I just it didn't, it didn't connect in the same way. But back in the early 90s, we were traveling with a mission team to the Boston area to work with the church planners there in that area. And on our way up, uh, we pulled into New York City and went to Hard Rock Cafe. Now, I'd heard of Hard Rock Cafe, but I'd never been. So we went in there. And when I went in, I began to look at all the memorabilia of all the, you know, the rock and roll stars and all of that all around. And I was kind of mesmerized by that to some degree. But there was a place where there was a shelf, and it was, it was in plain view of anywhere you sat in the restaurant there was a shelf and on that shelf there were several things that I noticed there was a crucifix there was a Buddha there was a statue of the Virgin Mary there was a menorah and then there were several other religious figurines up on that shelf and right above all of those things was this sign that read they are as one. They are as one. In other words, all religions are equal. All religions will get you to where you need to go. And you know, there are many in our culture who believe that. And in our cultural and spiritual diverse climate, that is the belief of a lot of people. And then there are some who just hold to the idea that Jesus is the only means for salvation. And though there may be a period of judgment, eventually God will destroy all of evil. And God will destroy all sin. And God will even set aside the judgment and everyone ultimately will be saved. You know, I was thinking about that as I was dealing with this text. And you've probably already seen through the course of the service where everything, was lead, where everything is leading to. And for us as a people and as individuals and as a church where this is leading to. But this question about whether Jesus is man's only hope for salvation really does come to us in such a way to cause us to look and see how we are going to live. In other words, how we are going to respond. What are we going to do in the course of our lives? If we believe that Jesus is the only hope for salvation, then that means something about what we are to do if we care about people. And if we ultimately believe that everyone is going to be saved, well then that means something entirely different about how our lives will be structured, about even how we gather here to worship. Because the fact is, is that if we come here and we say that Jesus is the only hope for salvation and we exalt God and we praise Him and we worship Him, but we don't believe that Jesus is the only hope for salvation, then we could just as easily go to a Jewish synagogue 
We could just as easily drive down Gordon Road and go to the uh, Hindu temple. We could just as easily find our way downtown to a mosque, couldn't we? If, in fact, Jesus is not the only hope for salvation, then it would really make no difference where we went or what we did as long as we acknowledged a God in some way. I think a way for us to at least ask and answer the question, is what Peter said here really true, would be for us to maybe ask and answer a few questions. So in the next few minutes, that's what we're going to do. Question number one, is there a universal need for salvation? Peter seems to think so. The Holy Spirit seemed to think so because he said this, and there is salvation in no one else. Now notice Peter here, he said, this man was raised up and healed in Jesus' name. But Peter moves from that healing because that man only stands as an example of the power of God to raise up what couldn't be raised up otherwise. Now Peter moves on to the, to the, big, to the big question. There is salvation in no one else. Is there a universal need for salvation? Well, the answer to that is yes. God's own testimony given to us by the Holy Spirit through the psalmist says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And, and here's the result of God's looking. Here's, they all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Those are God's words coming from the psalmist. The Apostle Paul refers to this text in his letter to the Romans when he wrote, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you'll remember just a few weeks ago when we were looking at Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote these words, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 And remember what we said then. I just want to just remind us. We said that Paul was not talking about the individual sins that we commit. But we became guilty of, was passed on to us, Adam's sin. So before we ever committed a sin on our own, we were guilty of Adam's sin because Adam represented us and his sin was our sin and we fell under the weight and the burden of that. So, is there a universal need for salvation? If we appeal to Scripture, the answer is yes. If we appeal to Scripture, the answer is yes. In other words, there is no place in Scripture, in God's Word, that would cause us to believe that somehow everyone was not in need of salvation. We need to hear that. In other words, there is none good. And what does that do for us individually? Well, we were reminded this morning that Adam did, and the psalmist did from Psalm 6. What? David was struggling with sin. And all throughout Scripture, we see person after person. And those are only ones that are recorded. God has not given us a record of everyone's life in every situation. He has given us 
concluding statements that engulf all of humanity when he said that there is none good, none, that we have all sinned. And those are declarations for all of us from the youngest to the oldest. Yes, there's a universal need for salvation. I think the next question that plays into this that really bears upon us is, is there really an eternal punishment? Is there really an eternal punishment? Fundamental to the need for proclaiming the gospel. And remember, we looked at, we looked at Ezekiel's call. But we also looked at Jesus sending out these people, at, at like sending out sheep to the wolves. Is there, is there a real hell? Is there a real eternal punishment? Fundamental to the need for proclaiming the gospel is this question. If there is no punishment for sin beyond this life, then why would we even be commanded to proclaim that there is salvation? Salvation in and of itself is pointing to eternal salvation. We hear about it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have what? Everlasting life. In other words, eternal life. So salvation in itself is pointing to eternal life as opposed to what? As eternal damnation, eternal suffering, eternal hell. Because we already know and we have seen that we have all been created for eternity. The issue is where will we spend? Where will our family spend? Where will our brothers and sisters spend? Where will our neighbors spend? Where will our parents spend? Where will our grandchildren spend eternity? That's the question. I have my four grandchildren here today. Where will they spend eternity? That lays in the balance. That's a real thing for us. We're not talking past us. We are talking to us. Why? Because there is in Scripture passage after passage after passage that points to the fact that there is real eternal punishment that hell and suffering is real for those who reject Christ. Let's listen to a few of them. Just a few. So is there eternal punishment? In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Luke chapter 3 and verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It was John the Baptist who was preaching there, by the way, in his prediction of the judgment that Jesus would bring in the end. In other words, he pictures this separation that there are those who will spend eternity with Him and there are those who spend eternity apart from Him and there is unquenchable suffering, unquenchable fire and it continues and it will not end. 
Mark chapter 9, verses 43-48. Listen to this. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter eternal life maimed than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Don't you pay attention here. We have brothers and sisters. In fact, we have a dear brother and sister, uh, a dear brother in Christ uh, that was once with us that believed in annihilation, that believed that at some point in time that God could not continue with eternal punishment and that they would just be annihilated. In other words, the suffering would end. But that's not what we hear in Scripture. And it is a good way to try to lessen the idea and the thought of of suffering for all eternity. But everything in Scripture points to the fact that the worm doesn't die. In other words, there will not be a time for an individual who rejects Christ. If they die, there is not a time that suffering and pain and anguish does not end. The fire is unquenchable. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. It's better for you to enter life maimed and lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. We heard that earlier from another passage. It's not just speaking of a purifying fire, but it is a fire of judgment on unforgiven sin. Was it unforgivable? No, it wasn't unforgivable in the atoning work of Christ. But rejecting Christ means you reject His atoning work. That's the reason that Peter says here, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. Matthew 10, 28, we heard this earlier from our assurance of pardon. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both body and soul. Where? In hell. Matthew 25, 41 through 46, Then He'll say to those at His left hand, Depart from Me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I want you to think about that for just a minute. If Judas had been destined for glory eventually, if somehow or another his suffering was going to stop, that he was going to be annihilated, that he was going to ultimately be saved, would Scripture have said about him that it would have been better for him not to have lived? No. No. If if salvation was at the end of all of that for him, then he just Served a role. He fit into a place and he sinned and he committed the ultimate sin in 
betraying Christ, but ultimately he'd be saved, but that's not what Scripture says. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. For God will render to every man according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life, but for those who do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. Some others that you can look at. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Revelation 14 and verse 11. And then I want to read Revelation 20 and verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What's the point? The point is, is that hell is real. Eternal judgment is, in fact, a reality for those who reject Christ. Question number three. Is there an exclusive, universal means of salvation? Is there an exclusive, universal means of salvation? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. We read this earlier a few weeks ago, but I recall this. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 23. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul, in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hast made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So the answer is yes, based on the facts of Scripture. Based on the facts of Scripture, there is an exclusive, universal means of salvation. Based on these facts, that Christ atoned for sin, that He alone was raised from the grave to give us life, that He alone is worthy and is the designated mediator to God. Well, can a person be saved apart from hearing and believing the gospel of Jesus? That's the other question. 
I want to be brief here. Not because there's not a lot to say. My goodness. The reasoning behind all of this is tremendous. The mystery of the gospel, as Paul speaks of it in Ephesians, is how the Gentiles and the nations are brought into redemption. It's not that the Gentiles had always been excluded. It was that upon Christ's coming, something very miraculous took place. That there was an unveiling and there was a revealing in Christ that the nations were going to be brought together before God. And that was only possible in Christ. And the gospel, even Paul's calling to the Gentiles, points to an example of how God intended Christ to be seen and viewed because in Him alone was salvation possible for everyone. But it's clearly stated that God's design of the gospel is to be proclaimed and heard and believed. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. There are countless scriptures that we could go to, but I want to catch it all in this one. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 17. Paul writes, but what does it say? Beginning in verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, hear that, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, now Paul's not excluding everything else as far as who Christ is. He's pointing to the significance of the resurrection. But His death preceded it. He's already talked about that in the rest of Romans. His atoning work. But notice what he says here. For with the heart one believes and is justified. How do we know that? Well, over again, we even heard today that we are justified by our faith in Christ Jesus. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then Paul concludes in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the Word of Christ. You see it? It couldn't be more clear. The proclamation of the Gospel is a must. It's a must to the hearing. And it is in the hearing that believing comes about. So it is preached. It is heard from the heart because the Spirit imparts that truth. It is believed. And then that one calls upon the name of the Lord. 
Is there any other way? Scripture gives us no indication that there is any other way. So what does this mean for us? I want us to look back in our text. Peter understood it this way. Look, if you will, in chapter 4. And look in verse 19. Peter and John, this is how they responded to, and and I'm going to paraphrase this, don't preach Jesus anymore. Don't preach Jesus anymore. And this is what Peter and John said. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you'll have to be the judge of that. In other words, he's telling them, You'll have to determine if you believe that your authority supersedes the authority of God. You'll have to be the judge of that. We know it's not. But you be the judge of that. This is what they just simply said. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then he goes on to say it. And now in their prayer, he said, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then we hear, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and did what? And continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. This text says so much, but I want us to land on this today. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Did you hear that? We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. For the person here who has trusted Christ... Silence is not an option. Silence isn't an option. Here's why. Because we have a call to preach the gospel. You've heard me say this. I have been even more convicted. And it's, I will tell you, God's doing a work in my heart over this. But as I was dealing with this text, I'm driving in and out of this road that I live on every day. And I'm making connections with people along the way. This will be the year, 2022 if I live, this will be the year that the people along that road 
will hear the gospel. You know why? Because when I go in and out of there, I know that most of them are lost. And like Ezekiel, and I believe we are like Ezekiel in this, that we have been commanded to preach and teach the gospel to them without consideration as to what their response may be. And I would rather be disliked in my neighborhood and be a witness for the gospel than I had to be silent and be liked. Where does that leave us today? I want to encourage you to do this. Pick out two or three people in your life that you know are lost. And just say, I am going to share the gospel with them. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. You know what? If you don't, they will never hear the witness of the gospel that is intended for them to hear that they might believe. And apart from that, they will spend an eternity separated from God. It's heavy, but it's true. I want you to consider uh, the words of the song that we're going to sing. It'll be a new hymn for you. It's an old hymn, but it'll be new for us. But I want you to pay attention most of all, even if we don't sing it right. Our leaders will sing it right. But even if you don't sing it right, read the words and think about what you're saying because that is our call. Would you stand?